0: Welcome in to Doxa Takes. Uh, Chase here, and I actually have traded David in for two special guests today. Both are great thinkers on the economy. They see the markets really well and are just two guys I have massive respect for. Uh, first, we have George Perks. He is the global macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group, a good buddy of mine here in Charlotte. And bonus, he is a new member of the Girl Dad Club. George, what's up, man? How's your daughter and how are you hanging in there?
1: A uh, little bit better, hanging in a little bit better since she started pre- or- started daycare this week uh so don't have to have her sitting on my knee while we record which i would have done just for you chase but uh luckily not the case uh but yeah she's she's awesome and being a dad's a great experience
0: i love it daycare is huge makes coming to work on monday uh all of a sudden becomes better because you can get the break you know
1: a little bit a little bit and it's funny because we're inverted like my wife often works from home i work from home um she goes off to daycare so my daughter goes off to daycare it's kind of a weird backwards commute situation, but we're figuring it out. It's been fun. Uh, and also with us,
0: we have uh, Connor Sin. Yeah, Connor writes for Bloomberg Opinion and is the founder of Peachtree Investments down in
2: Atlanta. Connor, welcome. It's really a pleasure to have you on. Hey, Chase. It's nice to have an, an all sunbelts uh, podcast here. I like that.
0: Hey, you know we're all on the same page on that one for sure. I-85
1: hegemony, baby. Let's go.
0: That's right. And you know, I feel like we need to do an Atlanta United Charlotte FC uh, game one of these days. We definitely have to do it for sure. Absolutely, that'd be a blast. I want to Georgia's tailgate uh, days so we can plug in every appliance that we have to his truck. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that'd be great. Uh, all
0: right, cool. So uh, I'm really excited for this conversation. You know, we're we're halfway through the year. Obviously, a great spot to kind of reassess where the economy is, where the markets are. You know, and early thoughts on next year. Uh, luckily for our listeners, you guys are masters at articulating all these things really well. So disclosures first, and then we'll dive in. Um, nothing we say here is investment advice. We do not know your personal situation, your goals, or any other variables that we use to create a unique financial and investment plan for you and your family. George Connor and I are just chatting, and of course, you're welcome to reach out to anyone at Docs Capital if you're interested in a tailored financial plan for you. So um, I want to start the conversation out with my main, highest level question. You know, it's in my mind right now. You know, for the last six, seven months. Here at DOXA we've been making the case of why inflation would come down and that's been largely playing out and I know we're all on the same page of that disinflation you know continuing for a bit here Uh, and then the second part of that right is how the economy had and continues to normalize from all those COVID bullwhips right or said another way unemployment's still low and spending is still fine right so if that's where we are now and that's what's what's happening you know kind of today how are you guys thinking about this environment continuing you know can it continue and do, how does the Fed deal with sticking the landing you know so to speak um, George you want to start us off
1: yeah I think the best mental model for where the economy is getting close to right now is is this economist phrase that I think um, you know may sound intimidating but really is, is actually quite common sense um, we are very close to what I would call equilibrium right where things are balanced where you've got um, adequate supply, adequate demand, and the economy is no longer getting pushed one way or the other um, with an impact on labor markets, with an impact on spending, with an impact on inflation um, or deflation. So um, we are very, very close to equilibrium. We might not be there quite yet. Um, there might be a little bit more labor market tightness to, to come off before things sort of get exactly where you would you know describe us as an equilibrium. But with respect to the pace of consumer spending, with this respect to um, activity in the housing market, with respect to supply chain stuff, with respect to shifts in the pattern of goods and services consumption, we're pretty close to where you would say, okay, this is like the starting point and what happens next, what shocks come in to, to move the economy into a faster pace, a slower pace, more supply, more demand, whatever um, from there. So um, yeah, I, I think that's where we, we are. As far as what could um, alter that or, or shift that either you know, pro or con, I think the biggest risk still is the Fed. Um, we've seen a lot of um, optimism around the last two inflation reports, justifiably so, and I think the FOMC has reflected that. We got a pause in June. Um, you know, We may see a little bit more tightening this year, but there's no um, vibe from the FOMC right now that they need to tighten with reckless abandon, which we saw earlier in the cycle. Um, so I'm hopeful that if we do tighten one or two more times, that'll kind of be it. Um, maybe we won't tighten at all. Um, sort of depends what happens, how things evolve. Um, but, but the big tail risk there is is still the Fed, and and on the other side of the coin, we have sort of steady background, positive demand contribution from um, fiscal expansion still, Um, despite the fact that we're through the COVID emergency, we've got long-term tailwinds for domestic investment um, and domestic R&D from fiscal policy and industrial policy. You've got the housing market, which is a similar story um, and uh, demographics still look pretty good. So I, I think overall we're we're in we're coming into what could be a pretty sweet spot economy that looks a lot like 2018, 2019 and, and where we were prior to the COVID shock.
0: Right, right. Connor, that was a lot. So, you know, pick something out of that and just run with it.
2: <laughs> I think I'll, I, I agree with the, the crux of that. And I just wanna, I think the growth picture is pretty steady for the next couple quarters. I don't see a lot in the data to, to think that it's going to change a lot in either direction. Where I think that the market's kind of warming to, but the general public still hasn't gotten there yet, is just how much softer the inflation data that we get from the government is likely to be for at least the next six or nine months. We have mm-hmm. a couple of things driving that. First is that used car pricing has been a roller coaster, but we know from the sort of private sector market data that... Um, used car pricing came off a lot over the past couple months, but that hasn't yet been reflected in the CPI data. And I would expect that to show up in the third quarter. So it wouldn't shock me if used car pricing drops 10% or so in the third quarter, which by itself is enough to chop a lot off of the inflation data. And then shelter data, which we have a lot of granularity on based on market rents and sort of private sector rent data. There's a significant lag in that for CPI and core PCE, the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, and that's going to soften a lot, really, at least through the middle of the next year, maybe the end of next year. And it's unusual to have something where the market's been so focused on inflation for two years. And we can say with certainty, I would argue, at least until the third quarter of 2024, that, infl- that sheltered inflation, which is 40% of core CPI, is going to be lower almost every month. And I think it's going to drop to 2% or even lower just because of the up effect that's happening in the private sector shelter data.
0: Right. Right. And I guess getting to the point of the question, painting that, that scenario for let's call it October, November, where inflation has now had, you know, three, four prints that look really good. You know, unemployment is still kind of the same, right? Uh, doing okay. So therefore spinning would be okay. So that that's where it's like, man. So, or what are we looking at next? Because I, like George, like you said, it's an equilibrium and man. Okay. We've we've seen this. We're we're here, and this is feeling pretty good. So, is, is it is it really just the Fed that we're watching for? Hey, they they're just going to push too hard, right? Or or is there something that you know we're kind of seeing maybe a, a twenty twenty four story that that should be on our radar?
1: Yeah, I, I think the Fed pushing too hard is the one that I would I would highlight as just the biggest risk. But I I also think the risk there is is coming down. Like we're getting closer to an environment where like there is no obvious major risk on the horizon and. The way markets and discourses and and human brains, frankly, tend to work is we will find something to get worried about. I am sure that's one thing I'm not worried about is that we will find something to get worried about. Of course, yeah, no doubt. (laughs) No doubt. It looks like, I mean, who knows? I, I think oil is an interesting thing to look at. Um, if you look at how hard the swing producer right now, Saudi Arabia, is looking to tighten markets, and if we are in this you know global economy that's like way stronger than people thought it was, and we see oil go to 130, 140, you know, I don't think that's a baseline scenario, but I think that's a fun risk to think about from the outside and what that might spark from the Fed or other central banks. Um, you know, an unexpected tightening in that kind of um, very important base commodity market. Uh, obviously, geopolitics is still at risk. I mean, the war in Ukraine is still happening, right? I mean, we still have political mm-hmm. in Russia, which has a whole bunch of nuclear weapons. Um, you know, the the China's foreign minister hasn't been seen in over three weeks. No one knows where he is. No one knows if he's alive. No one knows if he's healthy. He's just gone. Um, you know, stuff like this, like there's so many uncertainties in the world. So and I don't say that any of those are necessarily a good reason to get super bearish on stocks or it will happen or whatever. Um, but I think that the, the thing is, we will find a, a, a something to get worried about, whether it's commodities, geopolitics, US domestic politics, um, you know, just
2: mm-hmm.
1: all that said, I do think that the one I worry about the most, even though it's getting less of a risk is, is the Fed.
0: Absolutely and I I will share that right to say I'm I'm concerned like that they've predetermined a level that they Want to get to without really any concern of uh, like Connor as you're saying all of the inflation dynamics that we have or rather Some in the FMC are gonna say we need to see four and a half percent unemployment Just period. I don't care what anybody says or what I what I see I want to see that because then I'll know that it, that it's fixed, right? I I mean, does that make sense? Is that something that that we think that they can back off of? Or am I just completely out of, of, you know, left field there?
2: Yeah, I think that's the, the risk and the question that we're still asking because the Fed has sort of argued that growth and inflation are tightly linked and they need to see lower growth to get lower inflation. And what's tough right now is that as we think about what the Fed could do in the back half of the year the growth data seems fine and markets are even improving, which could suggest some upside to the growth data in the back half of the year. At the same time, that inflation data is coming off due to the bullwhip dynamics that we've talked about with the pandemic. And so what will the Fed do if growth and markets are improving and inflation is coming off? They haven't really talked about that and they haven't really even said its a possibility, yet I would argue it's the base case for the markets for the next six months.
0: Absolutely. And I, I was thinking about that in the last meeting. It's, you know, hey, we've been talking about the soft landing and I think we can get there and I think we can make it for, you know, what, a year now? And as you just said, I almost feel it's base case, right? George, again, equilibrium, right? I, I have no, they haven't said what they're going to do when they arrive, right? Uh, maybe they should throw a party and then like take a break for six months. Yeah, That'd I don't be think nice. That-
1: I, is, logically, I don't think the Fed is committed to to raising rates for the sake of raising rates. I think if inflation was not. improving, they would. And and like you said, it, like if we okay. So as a hypothetical, um, the the inflation metric that Chair Powell has repeatedly just hammered over our heads is this idea of services, PCX, housing, and energy. Right? Like this is. The way he thinks about inflation right now, if that was running at five percent and not falling and not looking like it was ready to fall further, then I think you know they, that you might see rhetoric from some FOMC members being like, "Yeah, we not, we gotta just keep going. We know we just look look at the prices. We gotta keep tightening because." Otherwise, inflation would be falling, and you know we can keep going further. Well, that's not what's happening. That was what was happening for the past year or so, but we're starting to see real improvements in, in core inflation data. That particular metric, um, for the most recent month, was down at two point eight percent annualized, which is uh, the second lowest print of the past eighteen months. Um, and there's you know other other windows of of rate of change are showing. Improvement as well. The CPI data is even more encouraging. And if you look at a country like Canada, Canada's most volatile, uh, CPI X8 most volatile categories today printed under 1% annualized and has, has run around that level for you know, a few different months. Now, Canada's not the US, but pretty similar economy, a lot of similar factors. Disinflation is very evident, and they look like they may have an undershoot of inflation in a lot of ways up there. Um, and you're seeing similar stories in other global economies too. So I say all that to say that if inflation is is continuing on the current um, improving trajectory, I just don't see the Fed saying, "Well, we got to keep hiking, got to keep hiking, got to keep hiking," because inflation isn't going up. They'll say, "Hey, we'll be a little bit patient for a few months and take our, you know, see what needs to happen and as long as inflation is converging to target." Then we're good what's the point of trying to speed that process up um so I, I think that's the optimistic case and i was connor will tell you i was very critical of how the fed approached uh a lot of the earlier communication around the acceleration in in, in interest rates and tightening and and i thought they were very reckless with it my view was long was there and the economy's handled it very well um so you know i remember
0: I, you and i talking about that they were being they were very can, they were talking on two sides of, for like last fall. I want to say last summer, last fall. It was yeah. I'm I'm on the same page.
1: So I'm I'm now I'm now, I think they're in a in a really good position. And you know if the inflation data continues on its trajectory, there is no reason in their model or anyone else's to to step on the economy further, and I don't think it will.
0: And George, to be clear, you're saying the 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 two eight that you were talking about on on your course your core PCE, you were doing that X housing, correct?
1: Yeah. So that's services PCE. X housing uh-huh.
0: and services. So X housing And so housing still even giving us a tailwind if, if you uh, lump that in there, I guess, huh?
1: Yeah. I mean, the, the argument that Chair Powell makes on that specific metric is, well, that's the sure. part of inflation. It's not because of housing and not because of energy and not because of supply chains. That's like the core. That's labor market driven. And that's our metric. Whether that's true or not is sort of that's a longer conversation. I tend to kind of disagree with that. But that's his model. And by his model, we have been better. So, you know, that, sure. that's what's important there.
0: Right. Sweet. I, You know, and I, that, that gets inflation, right? So, I mean, I, I, I think we've really um, hammered that home and that, that all, I think, makes sense. You know, let's hit the other side of the coin then, right, of unemployment. Obviously, at, like George, you just said it, the economy's handled it really well so far. The, the rate hikes and, you know, we're 18 months into it, you know, and prime age uh, uh, employment, you know, ratio is still kind of creeping up. Um I think the last unemployment report what 36 maybe 35 I I might be missing a tenth. I mean that's that's amazing for the labor market to have that strength, right? That to to continue the strength, I guess. So, you know, two questions for for both you guys is more of um where could job losses come from, you know, per se, um and or why? Uh, have we really seen this strength continue? You know, I, I know I had to field a lot of questions we had last fall of all the tech layoffs and it was like, man, those layoffs happened, but they, they got jobs, you know, again, quickly, I guess. Right. Connor, how do you feel about the labor market or, or talk around that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I think if you asked me where could layoffs come from, real estate transactions are still down a lot because people like us perhaps have low mortgage rates mm-hmm. and don't want to move. And so, if you have 4 million existing home sales per year instead of 5 million that's a lot less business for realtors and stagers and movers and things like that so there's room for layoffs there i would argue um i, I think anything touching a debt f- finance small business is in, is kind of a tricky situation where we could look at the stock market going up every day and say financial con- conditions are loosening but if you have a lot of debt and you need debt from a bank your rate might be eight nine percent and a lot of businesses just can't fund or, or make sense of those levels. So I think that's the area where the higher for longer for rates really could have an impact in terms of slowing down the economy. And then in like there's talk about I guess George maybe is more familiar with this than I am, yellow company and the, the freight economy is still in recession and there's arguably excess capacity there. So if freight volumes don't recover soon, there's room for layoffs in that sector as well.
0: That's a fair point. I I know uh, some I actually have written down here is just a a random thing. Nike on their um, quarter call uh, a couple of weeks back said freight rates were uh, below and back to pre-pandemic levels for 2024, right? Con- contract prices, not spot prices, as as they will. Uh, so you know, good for inflation, right? But like you said, maybe that comes with some consequence on the on the employment side. George,
1: yeah, I mean, transportation is just not a huge uh, share of of employment. I mean, I think it's a very important sector for a specific segment of the labor market, but I mean, it's not going to be a massive aggregate demand shock, right? Um, I think the build-out of the logistics economy around just-in-time delivery for e-commerce and and sort of the the forward staging of that sort of stuff, um, the pandemic showed how Uh, much capacity needs to be built out there. And I I mean, I think if you have um, 10, 15,000, 25,000, 100,000 truck drivers lose their jobs because of cyclical weakness in uh, in haul markets, I I think – they'll be absorbed pretty easily in roughly comparable jobs elsewhere in that value chain. I, I don't, I don't think that's a huge tail risk. I will say it's funny. Connor seems to have made the, the case pretty explicitly in, in what he said today. Uh, just get short auto uh, dealers, like get short your local car dealership because when you think about debt funded small businesses um, you know, the, the cost of inventory for your Ford dealer uh, has gone up dramatically, right? They have to, they have to finance sure. their lot costs um, at, What amounts to the Fed funds rate? I mean, a little bit more um, than that, but but that's kind of you know. So going from um, holding your inventory at a financing rate of one to two percent to holding it at a rate of five to six percent, that's a huge deal for how much inventory you can carry. Um, And I think that's another interesting example of you know, on on top of as. Uh, Connor mentioned, also used car prices coming down. That hits dealer margins as well um, and is a sign for demand. Um, you know, like this confluence, uh, it, it's it's like the housing market where we thought that high rates would kill demand. Well, it did, but it also killed supply in the housing market. Right. And it's going to happen with the auto market as well. Um, so I think that's just another example of the economy being in this very stable equilibrium right now. And, and it's hard to see where that next shock could come from.
0: Right, right. that's interesting. I haven't thought about the auto market and that and that light right the the housing market's fascinating from um you know the transactions just you know going uh, going down so much Connor like you just said yet so did supply so we're at this weird uh stable version of something but uh, I know I know one thing Connor me and you have talked about before right when you have rates go down and mortgage rates are come back to maybe five and a half five for whatever reason that is a big you know, fiscal boost, let's call it to the economy that's coming when you're just going to unleash housing when everybody wants it, right?
2: Yeah, I, I think if you're trying to think like, what what could we be worrying about? Is that potentially the disinflation we're seeing right now isn't necessarily a normalization, but it's just kind of a give back of, of a pandemic bullwhip. So like, rents are not sustainably going to be 2% or below, I don't think. And like we had this goods recession last year that's maybe bottoming out and that will end and turn back up. Maybe autos have some deflation now, but then that bottoms out as well. And if we see lower inflation data flow through into looser financial conditions, we could maybe re-accelerate re- growth and then maybe there's more inflation on the other side of that. But I think that's really a story for 2024. And so it's hard to worry about a 2024 risk in July of 2023.
0: For sure for sure. And so that, that will completely segue into um, the next uh, kind of topic I wanted to talk to you guys about, which is a much bigger picture, you know, than, than the next six months or the next 12. Um, and, and that structurally, right, higher inflation or lower unemployment. And, you know, if we were to, to view the world in decades, right, you're, you're, 2000s, 2010s, 2020s, 1990s, it does oddly work like that sometimes. But to do that, right, your 2010s, obviously after 08, that was the economy, you know, your social networks, your sharing economy, VC funded consumer surpluses, right? Versus 2020s, you you hear these things of like, okay, I think we're gonna have, you know, higher, higher inflation, higher productivity, lower unemployment, like, you know, structurally. Um, or, or maybe 2010s was just a anomaly lower, and now we're kind of going back to a bigger trend, right? You, you see kind of the stage I'm setting here for you guys, uh, the really big picture of kind of where we think that the economy, um, you know, is kind of ending up, right? And demographics obviously drives a lot of this. Connor?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, as I think about what would, a, a decade from now, if we're doing this, how would we describe the 2020s economy? I would say the three pillars of it are housing, sort of public sector, probably maybe public-private sector investments so things like infrastructure clean energy ev transition all that stuff and then we'll see about ai but you know ai capex and ai investment and all that stuff seems pretty labor intensive capital intensive so it doesn't seem to me like we're going to have the same kind of low growth low inflation low interest rates environment we had in the 2010s and the question is just how much growth how much productivity do we get from all this mm-hmm george
1: yeah, I think we talk a lot in economics about this idea of a, of a demographic dividend. So if you go from a fertility rate of seven to a fertility rate of two, you're going to have a number of decades in, in that process where you're going to have incredibly high growth rates, right? Because you've got lots of prime working age people, you've got very few retirees, and you can just really churn output really, really nicely. And, and the demand profile matches up too. Um... I, I sort of think that the the 2010s uh, were the sort of apex of the same process going on, but with social infrastructure in the United States. Like we sort of reached the maximum extraction of sort of uh, pushing these social bounds and like the way we've organized society to be as um, profitable as possible um, and and squeeze as much output as possible out of it without subsequent reinvestment. Um, and so what does that look like? I mean, I, I think, a lot of the American um, dream or the American social contract was was stitched together in, in the New Deal, and we had these this sort of like agreement that we would you know be able to do things a certain way, and you would have stability, and would have a chance to sort of have a stable middle class, and and that sort of stuff. Over the last thirty to forty years, we've kicked out a lot of those planks. And so that works to, to sort of turbocharge the creation of of wealth and creation of income for a while, but eventually you sort of run out of planks to kick out and, and run out of, of beams to kick out, kick out. and um, you sort of have to reinvest and reinvigorate that that social contract at some point. And I think we're starting to see that in the in the 2020s. I think the Inflation Reduction Act, um, while it's not explicitly targeted as like a as as like part of the larger social contract, it's it's bringing forward this idea that we need to invest together in something. We need to do something. Large scale together to to change how the the society is working. Um, right. Chips act is the same way on a on a, on a different topic, but but similar deal. Um, you know, this is not like the New Deal in terms of the the scale it's at, and it's not comprehensive. But I do think we're starting to see that. So, I I, I sort of think of my you know very early adulthood as this time when like we were at the absolute maximum of. You know, do everything we can to squeeze labor. Do everything we can to maximize the generation of profits from an aging infrastructure, um, from sort of aging social bonds um, that sort of keep people together and keep people, you know, we're one country and we're, we're there's some some um, uh, sort of peaceful ability to sort our problems out. To then the 2020s or late 2010s, early 2020s, it's, it's like, oh man, this is a big problem. Like we're not getting along anymore. Um, not just in terms of the politics, but in terms of how our day-to-day lives work, um, coming out of the pandemic, um, the number of stories I hear about people just losing it in public, you know, stuff like that, right? So, so that, to me, I think is the big trend, and, and that sounds like something that's sociological or, or um, historical or something like that, but I do think that does have a bearing on the economy because how we treat each other and how we see the people around us is, is really important for economic um, growth outcomes and, and how... Um, economies grow over time. The pattern they 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 achieve. So hopefully we can see more projects like like the IRA and like Chips Act and bipartisan infrastructure bill that sort of work towards rebuilding some of the physical and social infrastructure that that we've sort of uh, let we we've eaten the seed corn a little bit over the last thirty or forty years. So so hopefully we can get some more seed corn back. Sorry, that went a little long, but I, it was hard to get it quickly and into-
0: that's an awesome way to think about it, though, is maybe the 2010s were that pinnacle of using all of the infrastructure at its very last, you know, squeezing the last margin out of it. And I mean, I don't think you could find anyone that says that infrastructure doesn't need money involved in it because of the supply chains. Right. I mean, you saw that strain in COVID, which that was, you know, one of the big things, obviously, with the Chips Act, like you said, with the semis of like, wait, we don't have any semis here. And, <laughs> and so... Um, if that comes to pass and that continues on, I mean, you've got to think then, right, that is um, a new political will, I guess to say, maybe a new paradigm of investing a lot of money and in, in, in projects, which at, at, the, at the least, that's a structural driver of employment, productivity, probably a higher nominal growth, maybe a higher inflation, I guess.
2: Yeah, I think that's the question is when we get to the other side of this bullwhip disinflation, which, again, I think could last through the end of next year, what does the other side of that look like? And is it like a 2010s, okay, we have 3.5% unemployment and we're back to 2% inflation, 2% growth, or is it something different? And I I think it'll be different. Uh, I I tend to think it's higher nominal growth, somewhat higher inflation, hopefully higher productivity, but it's still pretty far away. And so for now, I think I'm focused more on just this, disinflation story, which I don't think the general public really appreciates yet. Um, markets are getting there, but, you know, 2025 is a long way away. So I, I think sure, sure, sure. that, maybe we can come back and see where things, how things go.
0: Right, right. Yeah. And so, yeah, in a sense, you're saying, hey, you know, COVID, those bullwits from COVID, they're very long and normalization is a process. We're still in it, right? Uh, we're coming, you know, now we're swinging to the downside, right? And, and, you know, TBD on where we come out and that's fair enough. I, I mean, obviously, I, I think well, that's probably yeah, correct.
2: I, I think George is right about actual economic activity is close to equilibrium, but just the inflation data is lagging a lot. And so that's going to show up over the right. next year.
0: Right, 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 uh, George, for, before I leave that, I know uh, right before we hit the record button, um, you were uh, going to tell me some stats on the the wealth transfer, right?
1: It's absolutely mind blowing how top heavy in terms of age, the distribution of financial assets in the U.S. is. So. Every quarter, the Fed publishes its distributional financial accounts, which look at the ownership of financial assets uh, by households across a bunch of different demographic categories. One way to look at this is the percentage ownership of uh, stocks and mutual fund shares. People who are over the age of 70 own 29.5% of all of the stocks and mutual fund shares owned by U.S. households. Uh, people 55 to 69 own another 45%. So 75% of the uh, <laughs> stock market plus mutual fund ownership of the, of the household sector is owned by people over the age of 55. And it's probably skewed quite high within that distribution further, right? Like, obviously, people who are in their late 60s probably own a lot more than people in their mid-50s, right? Like, that's how that works. So, in other words, people under, and then people under 40 own 3.1%. Now, that's sort of been the way it's been for a long time uh, to a certain extent. Uh, but if you go back to 1990, people under 40 own 10%, people over 70 own 21%. Uh, you know,
0: and that's just assets, right? Not how, are you doing, is housing in
1: there or no? That's just, that's just the stock market uh-huh. and mutual funds. Um, as far wow. as real estate goes, it's a little less skewed. So right now people under 40 own about 14% of the real estate value uh, households own. Uh, whereas people over the age of 55 own about 55% uh, in total. So it's much less skewed in housing. uh, But for the stock market, I mean, we're going to see an absolutely unparalleled shift in who owns stocks just because people are going to die, right? Like, like, just because people are going to, buy it, by virtue of their age, aren't going to make it, and so that that's got to go somewhere. Some of it will go to nonprofit institutions. Um, obviously, um, I'm sure Chase knows more about that kind of financial planning than me and Connor put together. But you know, I, I like that's still an enormous amount of liquid wealth that's got to change hands. One other stat I think that, that's worth thinking about is. Uh, net fixed investment, we, I was talking about um, investment not only in, in physical infrastructure, but in social infrastructure as well. If you, just looking at more physical infrastructure, so this is uh, net investment, basically uh, production of fixed assets, less depreciation across the whole economy, so government and the private sector. Um, since 1947, that's averaged about 8% of GDP. Uh, so in 8% of GDP goes to creating new fixed assets assets that are above um, what we already have in our, is depreciating. Uh, right now, that number is below 4%. In Q1 2023, it was 3.7%, and it was falling rapidly. Like falling from a recent high of about 5.5% in 20, Q1 and 2022. It's now 3.7% and falling rapidly. And so, you know, we are way, way, way underinvesting what has historically been the case in this economy. Um, and Out of
0: curiosity, problems. can you see like a 2019, like, you know, right pre-COVID?
1: Yeah, so like Q4 2019 was
0: 4.9%. Man, we're still under that.
1: Yep. Yeah. Uh, really, it's been it's been it, it bottomed uh, obviously during the rece- the recession of the global financial crisis. So Q3 2009 mm-hmm. was the was the all time low, uh, less than one percent. But you know, we are still in a very low investment world. Um, you know, we talk a lot about about the growth of manufacturing from the IRA and Chips Act and all that stuff, and I think those are great themes and they're 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 going to be around, but. As an economy, we invest almost nothing compared to what we have historically.
0: Right. And, you know, I guess uh, uh, to piggyback on that, the question would be if you're going to have, you know, financing rates a lot higher than even they were in the 2010s, you know, are things going to pencil?
2: Right. That's a, yeah, I have friends who say that uh, suburban retail, like real estate, you know, shopping centers and whatnot are just so hot now because first people have moved to the Sun Belt and then people have moved from cities to suburbs. But banks won't lend to build new shopping centers because rates are so high and, and the economic uncertainty. Uh-huh. So even though we need it, to your point, it, it doesn't pencil right now. Right, right, right. Fascinating.
1: It also depends on what you're what you're doing, right? Like if you look, yeah, mechanically over time, investment by. Corporations or by the private sector at large tends to track profitability more than it'll track uh, interest rates. Like it's hard yeah. to predict what future investment looks like based on interest rates. It's pretty easy to do it based on on what the stock market's doing. So if you've got high profits and high equity values, you you tend to see more investment than you do other way around. Whereas like the level of interest rates historically in the U.S. hasn't really had a big impact. You've seen very high investment with high rates, very low investment with low rates, and vice versa sometimes. So. Um, yep. certain kinds no of- doubt, obviously, are, it's a little bit more nuanced, but in aggregate, high rates aren't necessarily going to have a big impact on investment. Um, there's, there's other factors that can, that can drive that more.
0: Yeah. It's all the, the psychology animal spirits of, of, of seeing what's out there. Absolutely. Okay. Last question here, uh, just cause we're all three Sunbelt guys. Okay. You got big houses or whatever million, five little houses, you know, sitting in uh, the suburbs of, of New York and Boston all their kids live in Atlanta, is this geographical shift, I guess to say, in in real estate as wealth transfers, is it going to be, is it going to be weird, right? Is there a big theme here or is it, you know, Hey, the market will just kind of figure it out and people move back to the Boston suburbs because their mom's house is now theirs.
2: Well, one thing we did see during COVID is that there is a demand response as supply increases or, or price declines. Like we saw when rents fell during COVID, there was an explosion in household formation, and right now we just know we have totally inadequate levels of housing everywhere in the country, more or less, and housing is very expensive. So I think there's plenty of room for, you know, people to fill in existing spots just with how acute this shortage is. And once we get there, which probably wouldn't be until 2030, totally, we can see if yeah. there truly is excess that needs to be fi- figured out. Uh, but that's a ways away, I think. For sure, for sure.
0: George, man, it, you come down in, uh, near my house and you see, I don't know, six new multifam towers. So <laughs> it's uh, the multifam growth here in Charlotte is gonna, uh, it's really coming online summer 2024.
1: Dude, we've been doing, we've been printing five and ones like it's our job in this town for the four or five years. And it's, there is no sign that the market is saturated, which is bananas to think about because it is. we have added so much of that infill density, but honestly, like up where I live, there's almost nothing like that because, and there could be for, for, the amount of greenfield you could do up in North Charlotte is unbelievable. And it just, you know, because there's still, it's still pencils on the South side of town and that's true in so many other places too. I I just, I think with regards to those sort of big, like Greenwich, Connecticut, people are always going to want to live in, in Fairfield. Sure. Like, you know, the, the relative price of, of, of a five bedroom house in Greenwich, or Darien. Like, yeah, sure. That's going to be a bad bet relative to like a condo in Brooklyn, probably like a Brownstone in Brooklyn. I would take the Brownstone in Brooklyn on a relative price basis. Are you going to lose your shirt in either one? No. Right. No. Right. 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 You know, so.
0: Yeah, that's fair enough. Price cures a lot of things, right? Um, I think that's it guys. Uh, you know, we hit, th- you know, 35 minutes here. Uh, that's an awesome conversation. We packed a ton in. So I really appreciate you guys coming on. That was so much fun. 35 minutes of everything that anyone needs to know about the economy, so I I think we nailed it. Cool. Thanks guys,
2: great talking. Yeah, likewise. Thanks guys, I appreciate you.